Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Welcome to this broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio on this Wednesday night, May 15, 2019. We're almost halfway through 2019. I tell you, time sure does fly, especially when you have grandchildren and, and you have those little ones to watch grow up. So, it's it, you know, we're halfway through 2019. And I tell you, in light of the fact that this country never abolished slavery, uh, they gave us the 13th Amendment, which allows for slavery as punishment for crime. And when you look at disenfranchisement and all the collateral consequences, I, I tell you, I just feel like I'm running out of time. Will I be around when slavery is finally abolished, not only by the spirit of the law, but the letter of the law as well? Well, tonight... On New Abolitionist Radio, we will be speaking with Gail Mohammed, who is the founder and president of Women Who Never Give Up. She is well known for her work helping families with loved ones in prison. And for the past 21 years, she has worked tirelessly advocating and lobbying for changes in our criminal justice and prison system. She is routinely called on by national organizations, committees of the New Jersey legislature, the New Jersey Department of Corrections, and the New Jersey State Parole Board to give testimony on a particular issue or bill. So we're inviting you to join us tonight in conversation. Of course, this program, New Abolitionist Radio, is hosted by yours truly. Of course, my name is Scotty Reed, a former prisoner, Tyson McCullum, activist Mother Khadijah, and a former prisoner and Grammy-nominated music artist Maxwell Melvins. Again, New Abolitionist Radio airs live every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. So let me uh, check the board. Um, I don't believe I'll be joined by our other guest tonight, but I, I mean, excuse me, our other co-host tonight, but I do have our guest on the line. So let me go ahead and welcome her in. Welcome uh, once again, Miss um, Mohammed to New Abolitionist Radio. Thank you so much. 
for having me. I am joyed to be a part of such an important conversation, especially, uh, you know, in the times that we're living in today in our country. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Now, this is your first time, hopefully not your last time, uh, coming on our program here on the Black Talk Radio Network. But what I do with first-time guests, uh, Miss Mohammed, because, you know, I find that a lot of people may not be aware of the 13th Amendment. Certainly more are aware of it than when I first found out that the 13th Amendment had an exception clause in it. And I found out in 2014. In 2016, we got the movie The 13th from Ava DuVernay. It was a good documentary, but I I just had some criticism in, in that. I don't think that the activists who were featured in it really understood what she was pointing at the 13th there was only one activist um a guy who hosts prison radio i think that's the name of that pro program that he hosts um i may be mistaken about that but he was really you know pointing out um the 13th amendment and everything that came after like jim crow um, you know, what we call it now, new Jim Crow or mass incarceration, but I call it legal. I call it legalized slavery. Now I want to know if you agree with my interpretation of the 13th amendment. So I'll just read it for you and the audience. Um, 13th amendment section one, 13th amendment of the U S constitution. I should say section one, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And section two simply says Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Um, in, in your opinion, do you interpret this bill? I mean, excuse me, this amendment as I do as not actually abolishing slavery but creating a new form of slavery through the prisons? <clears throat> yes, I do. 100%. And not only do I agree, we started in New Jersey back in I'm dating myself oh, we started with the second coming of slavery in North New Jersey at Essex County College with Sister Frederica Bay and Brother DeLacy Davis would host those forms, bringing the Department of Corrections, legislators, and former incarcerated people to the table to address just that. We've, some of us have always known that they have been able to incarcerate us under the 13th Amendment to continue slavery. Trying to wake up the rest of America to this has been a challenge for the last 20 years. So I agree with you. Um, and those activists that did the 13th Amendment, I actually have worked with some of them for over the decades. Some of them are very seasoned activists. The only thing that I was disappointed in is that they didn't call the Jersey girl in who's been working with them for 20 years to end mass incarceration in our state. And we've done some phenomenal work here in the state of New Jersey, taking it from being one of the worst states in the country to now leading on criminal justice. I call it transformation now. 
Well, you know, and I want to thank you and those activists for your early advocacy. Um, I know Lee Wood is the first. I call him the father of modern abolition. Um, he's a former prisoner. Um, he's in poor health now. He's up in his 60s, late 60s or 70s. And, you know, I hope I hope that, you know, um, his suffering eases. But he wrote a book back in 1970 that I came across in 2014. I came across it online because it's no longer in print, but it it was just simply titled Prison Slavery. And when I was able to view the contents online, some of the contents, it clearly pointed out the 13th Amendment. And I was like, wow, you know, I, I, I was a good student in school. I was, and history was one of my favorite subjects, you know, but We never, ever, 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 ever talked about the 13th Amendment, nor read it. I even went to college. Now, of course, you know, the degree that I was seeking, we wouldn't cover that. But, you know, uh, some of my other folks that have been to college, they tell me the same thing. We we never covered this in African-American studies or or anything. And I just hope that that changes. Well, it's our job and our duty to make sure it changes. Um, that is one of the things I think we, you know, several, uh, I, I always blame it on our generation. I'm 60 myself. Some portions of our generation got caught in the drug, um, wars. And I think we dropped the ball somewhat because mm-hmm. our grandparents knew better. Um, some of the things that I, I actually was just telling a, a family member, some of the things that I'm living through, my grandmother told me we were going to go through. So they knew, and and what happened was we got relaxed, mm. and we assimilated to the culture of our our oppressors, and so we thought we were free. But mm. some of us, like myself, I think I was born for the struggle, and I've I've never thought we were free. I've always felt mm. like we were slaves still, and because mm-hmm. of the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. always. Yeah, and and the black shout out to Angela Davis uh, of the Black mm. Panther Party. You know, well, she mm. used to be in the Black Panther Party before the FBI destroyed it, but um, she was one of those early abolitionists as well that was you know talking about um, the Thirteenth Amendment. So you know, there have been some people who have been raising this issue, but I I have to agree with you. And, well, at the same time. You know, I have to, I do agree that we kind of dropped the ball, but I think the reason we dropped the ball is because a lot of people got scared after the assassinations of Malcolm X, the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, you know, we still got Black Panther Party members still in prison um, to this day, uh, with a couple of them is trying to get new trials now with Momia Abu-Jamal being the most famous of the, or well-known of the uh, political prisoners uh, that we have. Um, but so I, I partly blame us, but I partly blame the system and it's particularly the system of miseducation. Now, I, you know, I'm not going to totally bash um, public education. I went to public school. I got a pretty good a- education. I had, I had pretty good teachers, but the thing is though, is that we're not teach. we're teaching a false history. Um, you know, to our youth and we're teaching them slavery is over. You were emancipated and you know, and that's that. 
and and now we know, you know, people like yourself and, and me, now we know, oh, this mass incarceration makes sense now. Jim Crow makes sense now. <laughs> now we see what what you were doing. So, yeah, so I blame the education system, but, you know, we got to educate ourselves. We can't, like Malcolm said, expect enemies to educate our children. Not that I'm exactly. calling everybody an enemy in education, but, you know, the facts are what the facts are. Now, I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, I was reading up on your bio. Um, CNN had did a feature on you. Um, and, you know, it just, I was just astounded by how much money um, that you personally came out your pocket with involved with a loved one who was in jail or in prison and the phone calls and the commissary and and just, wow, I'm like, man, we already as black folks don't have no wealth, but I wonder collectively how much of our the wealth that we do have or the little bit of money we do have, how much of that is going into the criminal justice system? We've sent their kids to college and paid for their polished degrees for decades. Um, and I think the story you're talking about, um, it was three of us, three members of Women Who Never Give Up that was featured. And one of the young mothers, that's the story that I think you're, you're referring to. Um, she is, um, uh, her husband and her son both was, you know, it's intergenerational incarceration. Um, was involved in the criminal justice system, and she spent she spent up to almost seventy thousand dollars at this point in in wow. over ten years. Um, when you count, you know, five to seven thousand, ten thousand here, ten thousand, fifteen, twenty thousand here, um, it just adds up to mm -hmm. thousands. And she's not the only one. She was just the one that was willing to speak to the reporters when we were called to do this story of. Um, the, the plight of African-American women and mass incarceration. So I, it's just twofold for us because not only those of us that are not involved in the criminal justice system are involved in it economically, mm -hmm. and then you have another segment of uh, black women uh, going to jail in mass numbers. And mm -hmm. I believe it's directly um, because of our men being out of the homes. Mm. Mm. Now, you know, um, women are the fastest growing demographic. And when I say women, we know that black women is number one when we're talking about harmful um, things in this society. But women are the fastest since the 1990s have been the fastest growing uh, demographic going into prison and particularly a lot of single mothers going into prison where the fathers are. I don't know whether they're in prison or they're just not around in, in the child's life, but it's like, it, it just seems like to me when we figure in the, uh, what they call it, the foster system, it's like they trying to re-enslave the whole black family. Yes, sir. It's called genocide. It's what it's called. Um, when I started doing this work 20 some odd years, it's really just, it's been 21 years since the death of my husband, um, who died in prison fighting for his freedom. Um, but I was an activist wife. So I've been involved in criminal justice reform for 30 years now. And <clears throat> it just, it, when I started doing this work, I used to, we were 13% of New Jersey's 
pop, you know, we were 12% of New Jersey's population. And now we're only 13%. And so in my eyes, I remember telling people, black and Latinos are 26% of New Jersey's population. But we compromise 68% of New Jersey's prison population. No, excuse me, it was 80% of New Jersey's prison population. And 68% of that 80% was African-American mm. people, mostly men. Now today, I tell the story, there's 30 little black boys that will go to jail before uh, one or two Latin, uh, uh, one or two white and, and maybe five to seven Latinos. So not only have we not grown in the 20 years that I've been doing this work, but we got, we doubled the number of how many black boys that go to jail, um, black boys and black girls now. So we have a huge disparity in the state of New Jersey with locking up our babies and with a threat to build three more prisons, um, Newark, South Jersey, and Central Jersey. So, Are you talking about the youth prisons? Problem. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, and there has been some pushback on that. Um, I hear from Max, and I think we we shared a story um, about you know New Jersey. And then the thing is, the prisons, the or as they call them, youth detention centers, or or whatever they call them up there, um, are the ones they have are not even full. So why are they building three more? I don't know. Well, sir, they are building them to fill them with bodies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and I don't know. I'm, I'm so when I, when I think about just the fact that it's 2019, myself, Gail Muhammad, body, mind, and soul, been physically working in this state and others to bring awareness about mass incarceration. The poor public schools um, that are funded because of by driven by tax dollars which if your parents are making more money than another child's parents you get a better education because you live in a house where your parents are paying ten thousand dollars in taxes where my parents are poor and whatever we're struggling and my parents are only paying a thousand dollars for taxes so my school stinks that is mm. to me Jim Crow <laughs> too. So the, 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 the legislators go to the drawing board and decide with kids grades in third grade in math or reading, if they're failing, that's how many prisons. So now we know that our schools in New Jersey have been failing. We know that. They mm -hmm. are poor. They have been failing. And so they've known this for 20 years that I've known this. So now we're going to build youth facilities in New Jersey 20 years later. This is what I see. So mm -hmm. we cannot allow that to happen because they poorly funded our schools so that our kids could fail in their reading and math in third grade. And instead of building better schools and creating better educational institutions, we're going to build cages for them instead. That's unacceptable. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Now, I want to give you an opportunity because uh, we do have listeners that are in the New Jersey area, um, quite a few in the New York area. Um, but I would like you to talk a little bit about the organization 
women who never give up and in your mission. Uh, it may be somebody out there that may be looking uh, for some help and don't know where to turn. So can you talk a little bit about the organization, how you came to found it and what your primary mission is? Um, well, I, I mentioned earlier, my husband uh, died in prison in 1997. Um, we were in maybe our seventh year of marriage and I think he was in his maybe 11th year of incarceration at the time. And um, his, um, the experience that I had as a wife trying to care for a dying man was just appalling to me as um, a, a working class woman. I you know, was a food and beverage manager in the casino industry and um, had a pretty decent job, you know, pretty decent life. Didn't really know much about the prison system until um, my husband and I um, found each other. And I started advocating for him when he got sick. And I found how horrible the healthcare system was if you were in prison, um, which made me just actually examine the whole prison system once he died. Um, I was just sort of left like, He's never going to come come home, you know. I like, I didn't want to feel like I wasted seven years, you know, because you do spend a lot of money trying to hold your loved ones down while they're incarcerated, mm -hmm. and so I just was left empty. But I had all this love and admiration for the people that I met behind the wall, the families yes, that were still trying to be there, supportive of their loved ones, um, the men that were fighting for the freedoms that I met that were friends of my husband, um, I just continued to start, continued to um, work and I volunteered for other nonprofits and then I realized that they were, I call them poverty pimps and um, I just had to do, you know, move out on my own. Like I said, I was a food and beverage manager so I kind of just transferred my skills to uh, work in this arena. Mm -hmm. And I volunteered for a lot of different nonprofits, consulted for different ones, just telling my story um, and listening. And, you know, the other people's and, uh, family members would call me and talk to me. We had a little support group. <laughs> we used to do it right there at East Jersey State Prison. I always say women who never give up was founded in East Jersey State Prison. Thank you very much to those um, some of those horrible guards there that were so this unnecessarily disrespectful and hateful and mean-spirited to people, old people, children. Um, I just couldn't believe it that they actually got paid to, to people. Like, who, where did their training come from? Mm -hmm. They have poor customer service skills. And so, you know, I just started meeting with elected officials and talking about, you know, these prisons are horrible. Do you guys know what's going on in these prisons? And so after volunteering for um, a little while, I got opportunity to work for Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Um, at the time, Governor McGreevy was our governor, and he um, brought Families Against Mandatory Minimums to New Jersey to help with the school zone elimination. Um, and so they hired me 
to come on board and probably because I was maybe the only member from New Jersey, it must have been about three or four of us members in New Jersey. And so I kind of helped New Jer- uh, Sam get, you know, get rid of our New Jersey's thousand feet school zone laws. We worked, I did the groundwork, grassroots organizing, mobilizing family members whose loved ones were in prison for drug related crimes that were related to the thousand feet school zones. That's how we found out. It, that really, it almost it shows how it, um, doing that work showed me where our prison population came from, mm-hmm. which 53% of New Jersey's prison population comes from Camden, New Jersey, and the other 53% came from Essex County. And we realized that in these different counties, we had million-dollar blocks, which meant we had that many people coming back to these areas in a certain amount of years. So we started speaking with our elected officials to prepare for these people that are going to be returning to Camden and Newark and Patterson and Jersey, you know, the whole uh, Essex County area and Lake County. So that's where our reentry things actually came into play. Um, at the time, Governor, excuse me, John D'Amico was our chairman of the parole board. And him and I, and I won't say before that, because this was the New Jersey Correctional Working Summit. It was, it's been a process. It's really been a 20 some odd year process to get to where we're at today in New Jersey, step by step. Every couple of years we've been working. New Jersey Institute of Social Justice started with the reentry roundtables. Women Who Never Give Up members participated in that. And the women spoke about what they were going through, waiting on their husbands to come home, preparing for them to come home, mm-hmm. and some after what they were going through when they came home. So we used our expert um, experience at the roundtable. Then we did the New Jersey Community Correctional Working Summit, which was one of the biggest things I think we did in New Jersey and Cookie Rivera was sort of the chair of the uh, planning committee at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was working for families against mandatory minimums and we put brought together the New Jersey Department of Corrections, the New Jersey State Parole Board, the New Jersey Black Issues, the NAACP, um, the let the um, Hispanic Americans for progress, I think no, this Hispanic American Hispanic Americans Alliance, HAP, I think it was. Mm-hmm. It's one of the Hispanic alliances. But these organizations, we met for two years straight before we did this major conference, and we had three tracks. I actually brought the minute from inside. We did workshops in Trenton and Rawway, and so we had a collaboration. And out of that, we came up with. Uh, I think the three tracks was legislation, sentencing reform, and prison reform. And it worked. We had everybody talking. We found out that nobody was talking. Agencies were not talking to each other. So things were falling through the cracks. We actually made some progress there. And then we continued to just keep fighting in New Jersey. And we, look at today, we have no bail. Um, although I, I, I'm finding that it could be 
not good for some people. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm still on the fence about it. But yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear your trepidation about that because I'm on the fence about that too. Um, because if you're like, again. Everybody in prison shouldn't be in prison and everybody's not guilty just because they got a conviction. But I have seen a couple of cases since I started paying attention to this where a person had been arrested over domestic violence, gets out on bail and then went and killed the woman, you know? So I, 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 I feel like certain crimes, like if, if you're, accused of murder and there's you know pretty good circumstantial evidence that you might have done this then i feel like you know i don't think anybody should be denied bail um but i i feel like you know you should you should go through the process of having to make bail because some people are, are just that dangerous or whatnot but the vast majority of the people that's in prison or in jail is in there for non-violent, usually drug crimes. Mm-hmm. That's why I testified. I, I helped, you know, actually, I testified before our legislator to end the money bail system here in the state of New Jersey. Um, and I've really been scratching my head ever since because I also have seen it not work for mm-hmm. people as well who what do you mean stuck in there because what you said what people put on paper is not all the way true and if you don't here we go again if you don't have that mom because sometimes the fathers are like oh you got him in there some trouble yeah but the mothers we're not letting our babies stay in these jails not if we can help it and it's the mothers that get the lawyers that get the stuff fixed because once you have a lawyer and you have that mouthpiece to sit down and go through all those charges and get them dropped because they were just some bogus charges that the police just wrote up. And this is yeah. what I'm finding out in these cases because we do a little bit of participatory defense right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that you, if you catch people when they get these charges, you can sometimes get some of this stuff dismissed because it's really a cop that's on, you know, on his bad day and he's going to write up everything but mm-hmm. can't prove anything. Right. And, you know, our people are just so intimidated by police that we're just, we don't even know how to fight no more. So it, it, I, I would also say intimidated by the whole process of the criminal justice mm-hmm. costs upwards of 90. I'm not sure the exact figure. It might be 94. It might be 90% of cases never go to trial. They're plead. They plead out. What? Oh, yes. We have a high um, plea plea. Um, bargain rate in New Jersey. It's it's ridiculous. Nobody goes to trial. The prosecutors don't do no work here. They just threaten you with all this stuff in the beginning, right. and then you hop out. And half the time, it's just smoke and mirrors. And if you pull their bluff, you usually will win. And I find that to be true in every case that I sit up and go to court with them with. That's not, not true. So one of the things women who never give up does is we support families who, who have loved ones who are involved in the criminal justice system and sometimes don't know what to do and mm-hmm. so we act in the support able there. I have some attorneys that work with us, and if they can't take the case, they'll really re- refer someone. So we help them find adequate counsel if that's what they need. Sometimes we have paralegals that'll actually do work for them as well. A lot of our um, brothers that have come home are jailhouse lawyers, and they're legal par- legal paralegals now. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we can help in that capacity. One, and and. Right now, 
Um, we're in the midst of, we're in transition and um, looking for office space. So we're not doing any um, direct services right this second, but we are working on um, campaigns. One of our campaigns is the Dignity for Incarcerated Caregivers uh, Assembly Bill 3979, which has moved out of the Appropriations Committee and hopefully, God willing, will be going to the Assembly this week and hopefully we can get it out of the Assembly and pass that bill. Mm. That bill is very important because it is going to um, create oversight and accountability to the Department of Corrections and our Ombudsman's office, which I think is a really important piece of the bill. Oh, yes, it it's, is. Very important. It's going to also um, end shackling of, of women who are pregnant and um, transporting women who are pregnant and shackled, um, keeping women from solitary confinement when they're and when they're pregnant. It's going to help with more educational and mothering parenting skills if women are pregnant. It's going to keep families within 500 distance from each other so families aren't traveling across the states to get to a loved one. Right. Um, it's it's a, just a, to me going to be able to keep parents parenting mm-hmm. while they're incarcerated if they are parents keeping kids bonded because we found out that children with incarcerated parents suffer from anxiety, depression, and um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so we know these things disturb their life as well. The whole family is incarcerated. So we do try to support each other, um, and we do have support calls. We get on the phone, and, you know, we have our Saturday sometimes meetings after the prison people will tell me how their visits was because we work 24-7 we are 24-7 operation I will answer my phone on a Sunday if a family's having a problem with a visit and and we work because we're families and we understand what it's like to drive two hours and have the wrong color on and you can't get in to see your loved one because they changed the rules this week mm. one of the things that you mentioned stuck out to me about for a number of reasons, it stood out to me because, you know, I've had um, my baby brother was in prison. I've had a couple of cousins that's that's been in prison. I, I don't think there's a black family in the United States that has not had somebody in jail or prison. And, you know, I did some I did some time in jail, you know, not on a conviction or anything, but you know how they get you on the weekend and then you don't get out to Monday or whatnot. But you know, one of the things that is a problem from me studying other cases is how they, I call it human trafficking. Um, I, I call it slavery and human trafficking because, for example, take Hawaii, for example. They take prisoners, people who are convicted in the state of Hawaii, fly them across the Pacific Ocean to Arizona and house them in Arizona. And that, to me, that's human trafficking. Um, the other issue is, and we spoke about this right before we came on air, is prison gerrymandering. You know, I think prisoners should remain in the districts that they lived in, that their last known address was in. They, and the reason I say that is because I just was made aware this year of prison gerrymandering. For those who don't understand what prison gerrymandering is, this is how it goes. 
Every 10 years, we have a census. And 2020 will not just be a presidential election. It'll also be the U.S. Census. Now, in the U.S. Census, you know, they count the total population, not just citizens, but they count the total population. Now, they pro- in most states, they count those prisoners as if they are residents in the districts that the prisons they are in. Okay, so what does that do? Well, when the federal government start looking at population numbers and start doling out resources and and even determining the number of political seats in a district. Well, when you're counting these prisoners, most of the time, you know, these prisons are located in predominantly white communities. And so then, you know, that's that's not only stripping African-Americans of of resources based on the census in in those communities that they live in but it's redirecting those resources to other communities and it's stripping them of their political power that's why i was so glad that bernie sanders raised the issue of prisoners voting i had no idea that maine and vermont allows their uh um prisoners to vote if they're american citizens so you know that kind of stood out to me when you talked about keeping the prisoners close to home of course for the obvious reason so that they can be closer to family members they don't have to drive 200 miles 300 miles to see a loved one but the political implications of that as well it, it stands out to me in 2010, when we did our last census, I testified in Camden um, regard to their city council about gerrymandering and making sure that our, because I told you, 53% of the prison population in New Jersey comes from Camden, but yet they're not getting the resources in Camden mm-hmm. to make sure that that 53% when they come home are counted in our Camden. You know, it's just not. And so, and they know that. But there are, our prisoners in the South is in the rural part where there's nothing there. So they're counting those prisons probably still in New Jersey that are from Camden down in Cumberland County. I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Had, had you ever, again, you know, I had no idea that this was even an issue. Well, I take that back. There was a two thousand in twenty eighteen. There was a nationwide prison strike. I don't know if you heard of it or not, but different prisoners around the country said, "We're not going to work. We're not going to our prison jobs. We're, mm-hmm. we're not going to do it." And they issued a list of demands, and one of those demands was the right to vote. And I didn't really give it much thought at the time, but then when Bernie Bernie Sanders brought it up. And then I started hearing these, uh, I'm going to try to keep my language clean here, but I started hearing these people start talking, oh, he wants the Boston Marathon bomber to vote, and he wants Dylan Ruth to vote. You know, just using an extreme example when that is not typical of your prisoner. Your typical prisoner is not a mass murderer. It's not a terrorist or what. Again, the mass majority of them are in there for nonviolent drug crimes. So when Bernie Sanders mentioned that and then I heard all these other, you know, uh, BS answers, it really got me looking at it. And the ACLU put out um, an article that was detailing 
the history of, of prisoner disenfranchisement. Because before the Civil War, prisoners, people who found themselves in prisoners, which it was predominantly white people back then, they still were able to vote. But it was after they so-called ended slavery and started up with the convict leasing and the black codes, the Jim Crow, all the way up till today, we still living with it. Um, you know, yeah. then they strip them of their right to vote. So this is really yeah. on my radar right now. It has to be. It has to be. Um, <laughs> it has to be. New Jersey, we have 93,000 people disenfranchised from the voting process. And 73,000 of those 93 are out here on parole or probation. So you are got people working every day paying taxes and can't, what is it, taxation without representation? Yes, ma'am. And can't vote. Now, that, and, and, and of course those people mostly look like people of color. Right. We know because 68% of our prison population was people of color. And so, yeah. So we got 73,000 people walking around the state of New Jersey that have been year after year after year after year not being able to participate in the uh, democracy. And that's by design. Liberty, life, and liberty. They can't have it. And that's just unacceptable. We have to fix that. And we we have to... we, we have to we have to fix that. Yes, ma'am. We can't let that happen. Because like you said, yeah. taxation without representation, which I also, you know, because we deal with a lot of former prisoners um, through this program and, you know, I come in contact with them. So I asked the former prisoner, um, I said, look, when y'all are in prison and y'all have those jobs, right? Um, do they take out federal or state taxes? And I was told, yes, on to both. They take out federal and state taxes. But wait a minute. Wait a minute now. That's taxation without representation. I heard, I, I don't know how true it is, but I heard that some colonists started the American Revolution over that. So. I don't know about that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, brother. We, we we definitely to me in, in, in black America, um, and even white America, I believe there's some really good people that really know that these things are wrong and they're really fighting to change them too. The problem is it's just not enough of them. It's not enough, like, you say. It's not enough. We have a new one of my biggest Irkers in New Jersey is the fact that the New Jersey Reentry Coalition is made up of the former governors who sat throughout these 20 years with all these horrible things going on in the state of New Jersey and now they're on the back end working. I don't understand it. It's just Did you say former cops? No, former governors. Our former governors. Oh, former governors. All, like the, the whole... If you, if you go on the website, I, I didn't even notice one day. Somebody made me go look at the website, and I almost almost had a heart attack because these are some of the same people that we've been begging to, you know, look at these issues that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And some of them have been progressive governors. I'm not saying they all have not. But the fact that you have the governors, you've got people 
that have retired out of corrections, out of parole, um, run halfway houses. This is who the reentry coalition looks like, and it it just it just it bothers me. I, think, I really I wanted it, to bring the attention to people that these are the same people who were on the other side, right, the right. oppressors, and now they are talking about you want to help help people put their lives back together again mm-hmm. A- after mm-hmm. we've educated you what to do it's just it's, it's I'm, I'm sick it's, it, you know that is actually a national issue as well as we see yes, for, for example Alec I'm, I'm sure you probably heard of the American mm-hmm. Legislative mm-hmm. Exchange, mm-hmm. Koch mm-hmm. Brothers and what have you. Now, Alec has been lobbying for, you know, these maximum penalties and, and you know, mm-hmm. these draconian laws and longer sentences and, and pr- mm-hmm. private prison contracts and what have you. But now they are so-called positioning themselves to make money on a so-called reform side. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm like, wow, can we really trust? Are these the people we really want to put in charge of criminal justice reform? The very ones who enacted the system. And I'm not asking you to make a, because um, I know you run a nonprofit, but we're, I run a nonprofit too, but we're speaking as our own persons. But I tell you, when I was reading the other day about South Carolina, I live in North Carolina, but South Carolina black voters. Um, favor Joe Biden by a large margin, and I'm saying, I'm saying to myself, this is the father of modern mass incarceration legislation, <laughs> and you want to put? They don't know. You want to make That's, him POTUS? They don't know. They just don't know. They don't know. Mm-hmm. Everybody's not informed, and that's what I found out. And in, and even in our black churches. They're not informed. They don't know this part of it all. They don't know how this happened. We do. Mm-hmm. And it's, again, this is why I can't retire. It's our responsibility to let the community know. Yes, because ma'am. everybody doesn't, you know, wasn't a nine-year-old little girl who wanted to be like Angela Davis, like myself. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody, you know, yet other people wanted to be doctors and lawyers. I, I, I wanted to be an activist and I wanted to be... I know I want to be like her. And so I just thought she was awesome. She's really one of my heroes. So um, I just think that, you know, God put certain things in certain people. And those of us, you know, like some of the brothers call me the modern day um, Harriet Tubman. I'm trying to free the slaves. I know that our brothers don't belong there. I've been, you know, may he rest in peace, William H. Buckman, was the co-founder of Women Who Never Give Up. And we I worked in his law office for 10 years, and I got to learn a lot and see a lot. And I actually seen cases where white guys maybe did pretty much the same crime as a black man, mm-hmm. and their sentence was totally different. Yes. And even inside, I've had them send me their um, their work, their, their cases, and I read these cases, and I'm thinking... Oh my God! I listened to their mothers talk about the time that they're gotten. Then I listened to a black mother whose son did the same crime, and listened to the time they got. Mm-hmm. So this is something that we we know now, and we can no longer um, just take this information and keep it in, uh, into yeah. ourselves. 
you know those of us. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Um, well, I was just going to say uh, we got a we got about a um, little over five minutes left, but you know, recently I had gotten into a discussion. It was a discussion of people with two points of different points of view. And I had to say the other person won me over um, and not necessarily won me over because he had to agree that we do need to pay attention to national politics. We do. You know, it is important to vote for a senator, vote for a representative or vote for a president that represents your values, that has a platform that speaks to the issues in a meaningful way and not just giving us platitudes and and what have you. But this person said, you know, when it comes to criminal justice, the most important races in the country of elected office is district attorney. And I think that we, and then I will follow that up with saying judge. Um, I really, really think that not only do we need to pay more attention to these races, because in a lot of cases, prosecutors run unopposed. But not only do we need to pay more attention to that, I feel like we need to be grooming and encouraging our young people to run for those positions and get in those offices as well as district judge, because that's the front line right there. That is the processing. The courthouse is the slave processing center. And so I I just feel like he, he was correct in that probably that's the most important issue when it comes to our individual communities. Would you agree with that? Oh, I definitely agree. That's why I'm taking young people to court with me. We fill them up the courtrooms. They actually get to see the process. They actually get to see what a difference it makes when people have representation from the community in these courtrooms, mm-hmm. really. Um, we have been working with the participatory defense in New Jersey. We've done like our last maybe, last six months, we've been really going to the court with families that are caught in the criminal justice system and we've been walking out with our family members. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, I think that we do need to, I'm, I'm really for passing the baton to our young people. It's one of the things that I used to, that was a pet peeve of mine when um, coming up in this 30 year um, uh, advocacy work that the elders didn't know how to let us young people bring our innovative thoughts to the table where I think, I know I've learned from just what happened to me and I'm eagerly letting them lead because they are, they bring different things to the table. Right. It is a, um, I think that the elders knew what they were talking about when they said old men for um, counsel, young men for war. It's a reason we're mm. supposed to pass the baton so that they can uplift and bring that next generation. They kind of hold the line. We, I've been on the front line for 30 years, you know, it, and, and it's, not going anywhere. Like I said, the numbers are increasing. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Well, you know, I just want to thank you for your service. Yeah, I I am former military, even though I look back, um, I joined the military because of poverty. Didn't want to go into college debt. Uh, just 20 years old, wasn't really thinking about it. Um, spent six years in there. 
and read Malcolm X in there. And that was the beginning of my real beginning of my political awakening. And so, you know, people find out I'm a veteran. They'll be like, oh, thank you for your service. I'm like, what you thanking me for? You know, I wasn't over there doing anything to benefit you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, and I'm not proud of that. And I forbid my daughters from going into there. But I do thank people for their service like yourself that's out here putting in work for the people. And I just want to thank you, uh, Miss Mohammed, for all for your 30 years of service to our communities. Um, as we close it out, are there any final thoughts you would like to leave with our audience? Um, any upcoming events you want to tell them about? Anything, the floor is yours. Absolutely, absolutely. I want everybody to listen and keep your ear to the ground with regarding to these juvenile facilities that they are trying to build. There's a rally in Newark on the 18th. I don't have the information in front of me, but the New Jersey Institute of Social Justice, if you go on their website, you'll find it. I think we all need to be there. They're trying to bring three new facilities, and with the money that they want to spend, they could bring a whole better educational institution to the whole state. So this makes no sense to every last one of us White, black, and Latino need to have ourselves in the streets raising hell about these um, uh, juvenile facilities. 94% of the African Americans voted for governor, and he needs to represent us like we represented him and make sure that our kids are treated fairly in this state, get a good education, and not looked upon to be put in cages because they might have some unruling behaviors, and that is because they took the parenting out of our homes because we used to chastise our own children and now that can't even happen no more but they would rather them be unruly so they could beat them down in the streets and put them in cages that cannot happen no more and um, I'd like for everybody to support us with the dignity for incarcerated caregivers bill and call your legislators and tell them that that bill is very important and that we want to keep families together and to vote for Assembly Bill 3979. And just be mindful and aware that New Jersey it has made some strides, but we still have a long way to go. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. As as we all do in all of these states. Well, and we want to vote. We want to give the voting rights back to people in prison and out. We yes, want ma'am. them to be able to vote in prison. Yes, ma'am. If they're citizens... Yes, ma'am, certainly. Um, and I want to tell listeners, you can visit the website, Women Who Never Give Up. Um, you can find it online at WWNG. That's the initials for Women Who Never Give Up. That's WWNG.org. And we are going to say goodnight to our special guest, and I hope she'll join us again sometime in the future, Miss Gail Mohammed. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, that brings us to the conclusion of this week's broadcast. Uh, please share the podcast. The podcast will be up in a couple of hours. Um, share the podcast with other people so that they can get this information. One of the things that, you know, Miss Mohammed said is a lot of people don't know things when we're talking about South Carolina voters. A lot of people don't know things. That's by design. We cannot just simply tune in to these corporate news outlets on cable and think that they're going to tell us everything we need to know. They are not. 
during the 60s, during the last, I would say, well, I shouldn't say the last, but the period of the civil rights movement and the black power movement, we had one important element back then that, that contributed to organizing our people and providing them with the correct information. We had independent black radio stations. That's what we had. Okay. So when I find that our people aren't as informed as they should be, that it, that to me is directly connected to the lack of independent non-entertainment radio or any kind of media format. Now we have social media. Um, we got the YouTubes and, and all the other stuff. But, you know, we now we have the ability to create our own media outlets. And we should do that. And that's what the Black Talk Media Project is doing. And we hope people will continue to support our efforts as we really want to, in the future, establish independent localized digital radio for a city or a town or a county because that's the answer to getting our people the information that they need to be armed with as we traverse this wicked system. With that said, recognize that slavery was never abolished and it's going to take a movement to end it. Um, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of the Sojourner Truths, the, the uh, um, Harriet Tubman's, the Frederick Douglass, and, and so many, many more. And we had to finish that work. We really had to finish that work that they were doing because, again, the 13th Amendment makes clear that slavery was never abolished. And it's not going to end itself. They're making too much profit, so we're going to have to force them to, like our our ancestors attempted to do. All right, with that said, be safe out there. Peace and blessings to all. Land of the free, it lies the home of the homeless. Too many die every day, and we really just want this freedom.